Welcome to Endless, a Sandman podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm writer, erstwhile DC Comics editor, and something unspeakably nasty in the basement, Alisa Quitney. And I'm story expert and vavasaur of her own domain, Lonnie Diane Rich. Today on Endless, we're going to be talking about The Doll's House, episode 7 from Netflix's The Sandman, season 1. The Doll's House was written by Heather Belson and directed by Andres Baez. Names, names, names. Each name is but a single aspect of the whole. Be satisfied with the trinity you have. You wouldn't want to meet us as the kindly ones. Time to wake up. In the doll's house, we begin in the dreaming, where Morpheus picks up a red leather-bound book with Rose Walker's name on the cover. As he examines a page in the book, we see the words, Dream History. Then we segue into a middle-class home where a teenage Rose and her little brother Jed are packing. They're interrupted by their mother, who tells them with quiet significance that their father will not permit Jed to leave. Clearly frightened, the mother moves to unpack Jed as the little boy pleads with his sister not to leave him behind. We cut to Desire's narcissistic citadel, where an arch and triumphant Desire summons their twin, Despair. All flaxen hair, ruby lips, and wounded vanity, Desire gripes about Dream's smug sense of superiority. Despair is not sure she agrees. Hasn't he suffered enough, she asks. Caressing Despair's apparently unwashed hair, Desire acknowledges their part in causing Dream's suffering. The Nada affair, Roderick Burgess, but that was hardly enough payback for the high crime of smugness. Keen to embark on a new plan of manipulation and deceit, Desire reveals that there is a Dream Vortex. The first in a long time, and it is a woman. The woman does not know what she is, but she's already doing what vortexes do, bringing everyone together, including Morpheus. Her name? Rose Walker. Seven years older than the last time we met her, Rose is about to go on another trip. With her mother gone, Rose is low on funds to pay for the PI she's hired to find her brother, who is missing. Jobless and low on prospects, Rose is nevertheless flying to London, where a foundation is paying her for some information about her history. Accompanying Rose in lieu of her mom is Rose's neighbor, the lovely, sad-eyed Lyta Hall. Lyta is mourning her own loss, her husband, Hector. On the plane to the UK, Lyta dreams of her dead husband, while the sleeping Rose visits the dreaming in a remarkably lucid vision of Morpheus and Lucienne discussing her and the missing major arcana, powerful dream figures that include the Corinthian and two others, Galt and Fiddler's Green. Lucienne and Dream send Matthew the Raven to surveil Rose, and she hears the word amulet in reference to herself. She wakes in a car outside a lovely old building. It turns out that the mysterious foundation that originally wanted Rose's mother has now brought Rose to this lovely old limestone building, which is a senior care center. There, Rose meets Unity Kincaid, an elderly woman who, until just a few months ago, has been dreaming her life away. It seems that right after receiving a doll's house for her 12th birthday, Unity fell ill with the sleeping sickness that afflicted so many after Dream's incarceration. In her dreaming state, she met a man with golden eyes and had a baby, Rose's grandmother. Yes, it turns out that Unity is Rose's great-grandmother, and she is rich. Unity bankrolls Rose's mission to find Jed, sending her back to Cape Kennedy where she and Jed once lived. 
Cut to a diner where a 60-something man who dresses like an accountant, a burly bearded man, and a 30-something woman with a smart girl bob are all discussing the loss of their major convention speaker. They need another marquee name to replace the one they've lost, and they settle on the Corinthian, uh, the latest one, as there have been stories about a serial killer that goes by that name for decades. But how to attract the elusive star? The collectors, as they call themselves, decide to copycat the Corinthian, who is off on his own mission to hunt down Rose and use her to put his boss out of business. The collector's plan works, drawing out the Corinthian, who resists the urge to kill the mortals he has inspired to create eyeball sushi. Rose's search for her missing brother continues as she meets her new landlord, a drag queen named Hal, and his assortment of waifs and strays, an attractive young couple named Barbie and Ken, a pair of spidery goth women who might be sisters or lovers. Rose also meets the missing neighbor, Gilbert, a well-upholstered but surprisingly nimble fighter, when he helps her to fight off some attackers in an alley. Unfortunately, Rose's mission to find her brother is complicated by resistance from the foster agency that placed Jed with some friends of their father. Stranger still, the boy is missing from the dreaming as well as from the waking world. We get a glimpse of where Jed is now, on a deserted road, desperately trying to escape an abusive foster father and a cowed foster mother. Placed in the trunk of a car, Jed hurdles off to more abuse, while a sister strolls straight out of the waking world and into the Dream Lord's audience chamber, demanding answers. All right, so here we are with The Doll's House, episode seven of the Sandman series. This is where we transition from one story to the other. We had our nice little warm transfer episode uh, last week with The Sound of Her Wings. Um, and here we are moving into this. I mean, I have to say, like, I love the dreaming. I love the adaptive choices that were made here. Um, the, the Doll's House in the comics was not my favorite storyline. Um, I'm finding other things that I just enjoy a lot more. Um, and uh, the episode... This episode of the series that kind of launches this storyline is also probably not my favorite. Um, but what's funny is that the rewatch made me actually like it a lot more. I think I have like a deeper appreciation for it. And I completely understand that some love is slow burn love. Like that's how it goes. Uh, what did you think of this episode? I, I had a similar reaction. I think my first mm -hmm. watch and maybe even some of my second, I was really distracted by the fact that it, it mm -hmm. was laying the pipe, uh, setting things mm -hmm. up a bit differently than the comics did. And I, and there weren't as many moments where I just felt, oh my gosh, I love this. But mm -hmm. when I went back, you know, and I was watching all of the episodes and I came back, I actually felt differently about this. I saw, oh, there, there are lovely moments there. There is good setup. And, mm -hmm. you know, that said, I, I think this is an interesting episode for me because I, I'm enjoying analyzing how it sets up for other episodes to come, which I, I do enjoy more rather than one that just viscerally, you know, I don't know, steams my clams. <laughs> Well, I like that as a metaphor. Um, all right. So what did you think about the visuals in this story? I have to say, like, I was one of the things that absolutely grabbed me that I was so taken with were the like the flipping stained glass windows to represent what everybody was talking about. I kind of loved that. I, I take it you don't mean that as a euphemistic curse. Um, yeah, no, those <laughs> flipping stained glass windows were were, mm -hmm. were flipping cool. I had. Yeah, I had some quibbles with this episode. OK, so mm -hmm. granted, it is. It is very cool. And what 
I mean, what the stained glass windows allowed us to do was to have a a visual representation in a neat way of, you know, yes. of these characters that we are referencing. In the comics, mm-hmm. of course, you just have the image and the caption over it. Um, there is my, my little quibble, which is Morpheus and Lucien turn to the windows as if to say, you know, and look. That this is what they look like. <laughs> Whereas, if if they had just allowed um, the images to take place and pretended, you know, this was going on just in the background, that that occasionally the dreaming just shifts with dreams' moods. I I thought that would have upped the cool ante. Yeah, no, it does. It does have the element of a PowerPoint presentation. We're missing a laser pointer, you know, with Dream. <laughs> um, but it is, you know, it's because the thing is, is that like Lucienne knows who they are, you know, and Dream knows who they are. So the idea that these, uh, if the visual of the the shifting uh, stained glass, absolutely, perfectly, wonderfully beautiful. But yeah, them acknowledging it instead of it just being kind of in the background to give us a sense of what, so that it's like if it was representing what they're thinking about instead of, um, you know, of being presented like it's a PowerPoint that they're both, they're both in a meeting, you know, they're doing one of those endless meetings, you know, (laughs) pointless. We both know the information. Why are we doing this thing? Um, You know, it does have a little bit of that home office feel to it. But, you know, at the same time I was so entranced with the unbelievably gorgeous shifting stained glass window uh, treatment that you know I was like all right I'll forgive I'll forgive the PowerPoint yes okay so here's the thing um the first time I watched I had a lot of quibbles and the quibbles often fell into the category of you know trust me to you know pick things up with chopsticks don't you know feed it to me with a spoon or a fork or whatever mm-hmm. but on on second or third watch, I realized that I had not seen something. I had I had fallen out of the habit of picking up my chopsticks. So there's there's something I sort of noticed and didn't I didn't fully appreciate the first time, which was Matthew, uh, the Raven, flying up into the ceiling, the mural on the ceiling, and then out into the the waking world. And of course, I'm making the appropriate gesture with my hand so that everyone can (laughs) see clearly what I'm saying. So Mm -hmm. then I I went back and I slowed it down. So that looks to me like a... I'm, I, I had to look up the pronunciation. I, I always mean to take French again. And I, Trump, mm-hmm. Trompe l'oeil, uh, mm-hmm. the, um, as I looked this up, I discovered there was also a, a play that had been done uh, called Trompe l'oeil, which I guess was a Trump l'oeil, mm-hmm. which was a, a play on, on Trump. <laughs> but so that references those fake 3D. It's painted to mm-hmm. look like a 3D effect. But as we go through it, that we and, and I think it literally means deceives the eye. So as Matthew flies through it, it, it becomes 3D and then it becomes the actual world, which is wonderfully Maurice Sendak, not in the comics, because how could it be? But this was great for me. But I slowed it down and began to get curious about what exactly is in this painting. And I found yeah. some weird weird stuff. Um, first of all, there's one that it looks a little like Adam and Eve, but then there's a, a character that looks kind of like a, a, a bare-breasted old woman uh, with mm-hmm. a scythe and eyeless sockets. 
And so was that a grim female reaper? Was that a a nightmare? Uh, Then I saw something that kind of looked to me like it's a someone is holding something that's got what looks like despair's fish hook sigil, sigil oh. uh, but it's got mm-hmm. multiple hooks. So I'm not sure if mm-hmm. I, and then there's a goat. <laughs> it's just a goat. I. <laughs> there's always a goat. <laughs> so there's, it's kind of fun, you know, on Netflix, mm-hmm. you can slow these things down. So I encourage everyone to like go back and take a look and see what other stuff yeah. you can spot in that mural. Oh, I'm certain there are Easter eggs all over this that, you know, I'm definitely missing because I'm not as familiar with it and also did not have the patience or even like it didn't occur to me to slow it down and take a look. But I love that you did that. Um, And yeah, like all of these images that are represented in there may be something that they're planning for a season down the line that they're going to call back to. I mean, who the hell knows? But usually when there is intricate, like this is the truth with costumes and with um, like any kind of design work when there's paintings, when there's stuff, everything that is placed in a frame is put there deliberately by someone who thought about it. So nothing is ever just kind of like thrown against the wall, um, especially not in a production like Sandman. So one of the really fun things to do with your TV shows um, and movies and whatever is pay attention to all of the little details because they will all mean something. And because I'm not as visually oriented, I usually miss that stuff. So I absolutely love that you took that time to like pause that down. Um, Another thing that we love, of course, I think you and I both uh, love this so much is Merv Pumpkinhead, right? The design of Merv, everything about him is just absolutely amazing. I love this character. I don't even know anything about him yet. His little stick uh, shoulders mm-hmm. sort of poking out mm-hmm. his stick I don't know collarbones sticking out yeah I mean at first all you mm-hmm. notice is the pumpkin part of him um, that is very distracting yes yeah. mm-hmm. but yeah no I I I really loved him I visually he is perfect I I wanted him to be a little bit um more anti-establishment as he was in the mm-hmm. comics at first but then I realized okay they're setting something up that's a little different here, which is mm-hmm. he he's deliberately aligning himself with Lucien as opposed to mm-hmm. Morpheus. Uh, and that's it is a little different than in the comics, but I, I'm kind of seeing that there's something more nuanced and political going on here. Yeah. And also, like, let's, you know, take notice of the fact that this is Mark Hamill. This is Luke freaking Skywalker, who is doing the voice work for Merv. And the thing is, is that like he does a lot of voice work. You'll see him everywhere. He is amazing. And un- and the thing about great voice work is that this person will be unrecognizable until you read the credits. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, my God, that was Mark Hamill. You know, so it's so wonderful to have him in that role. And it's a small role right now. But that, I think, is something that's going to be paying off dividends if, you know, fingers crossed, we end up getting a second season. Yeah, no, I, I think there's something really wonderful, too, about the establishment that, that you know, he says, Matthew, who's Matthew? And Matthew mm-hmm. says, Merv, it's me. And you realize they've had this whole relationship, but Merv has not really clocked his name, uh, which, mm-hmm. which actually, I, I don't remember that from the comics at all. And that did feel that was a nice moment. It felt very real. Yeah, it is. It's a nice development of that relationship. And, you know, Matthew being kind of like the new kid on the block at this point, um, you know, 
know. Uh, we also have some really fun kind of Tim Burtony sort of visuals going on in the the Florida house, uh, you know, where we've got all of these characters. We've got the weird plasticine, you know, Ken and Barbie, and then Zelda and Chantal, which I think are really kind of neat looking. They are. They are. I, you know, in my... Again, in my first watch through, I think my my quibble was, oh yes, they're they're charmingly Winona Ryder esque in Beetlejuice yes. era mm-hmm. Winona Ryder, but I I wanted them to be creepier a bit the way they were in um mm-hmm. in the comics, and then I just started to do a little more digging and I found some cool little tidbits about the mm-hmm. spider pair the spider women Mm -hmm. um from the from the annotated sandman so i'll save that as a little tempting lucien's library tidbit oh i love it I think that'll be perfect. Um, well, let's get talking about some of these adaptive choices. I mean, considering that the Doll's House is not my favorite of the Sandman comics, um, a lot has been done here to make it so much better. And one of my absolutely favorite things from the entire first season happens in this arc. I can't wait until we get a chance to talk about that. Uh, we we do kind of allude to that in this episode, which I really love. Um, but so far, like I really like Rose. I didn't really care for Rose that much um, in the in the comics series it felt like she was you know she was blonde it was kind of a pedestrian kind of pretty she didn't feel like she had that much actual um you know uh, personal agency she was damseled quite a bit uh she was sexualized a little bit more than i probably would have liked uh here we have a new rose um rose who still has the like pastel colors in the hair i really love that we're pulling that through um but we have her now imagined as a black character which i think is uh, really nice to see again having more representation throughout the cast in a number of different places. Um, and uh, and I really like the way that they have kind of rebuilt her. Um, I love the choice for Lyda Hall to bring her into the world, to make her part of Rose's inner circle, um, to have Hector there, you know, in that background. I think that that's really nice. It's so devastating to have Lyda going through that very active grief space that she's in. And that's something that she shares then with... Uh, with Rose, and I'm sure that she is also uh, grieving Hector because they had that relationship too. You know uh, that that Lyda and Hector had kind of adopted Rose. You know when she was going through all of this with her mother's illness. Um, so I love that connection, and I have to say, like that moment when Lyda was talking to Hector on the airplane, the. I felt that grief. Like, I felt that heartache when she woke up and there was just this weird lady sitting in his seat. Like, um, yeah, it was it was really, really devastating. It it was, you know, when I when I started to think about the themes of uh, Doll's House, I thought it's hard sometimes to write something when you're commenting on, say, the damseling of women. I think Mm -hmm. that was a deliberate theme for you know for for Neil that he was trying to look at at ways that women were being uh, you know mm-hmm. shut out and shut into houses and not allowed to have to become their fullest selves and i think there is a way that this is more successful at showing that that we are we are examining with a critical through a critical lens the way this happens as opposed to playing into it and uh, I absolutely I, I'm I think that a lot of subtle choices have added to that as well as one larger choice um, when, you know, in the comics, Lyda 
I, I'm trying to think of a way to express this without going too much mm-hmm. into the weeds for people who haven't read the mm-hmm. comics. So Hector in the comics is off living his Sandman fantasy. He thinks he is the Sandman. Yeah. He's off in, in this alternate storyline that looks and feels quite separate from everything else. Mm-hmm. Lyda isn't integrated. And she's sort of a bit player yeah. In a bit play, she's a bit player in a secondary <laughs> subplot in all of this. Yes, and and I think uh, if you look at the annotated Sandman, you can see, and this is before I started work, that Neil felt, wait a second, what's going on here, and then realized the fullness of her role and the implications of who mm-hmm. she is, and here. Because we do know, you know, Neil knows from the outset how important Lyda's role is going to be. He integrates her more fully into the main storyline. And I I think that that does just make a lot more sense in it. It feels more more organic. Um, and and perhaps that and a whole whole bunch of other small shifts in in how Rose is is portrayed mm-hmm. helps helps it to feel you know less like the thing that it is commenting on. Exactly. No, it's really really nicely done. I love like I have to say the adaptive choices have been absolutely wonderful for me and have addressed a lot of the concerns that I have when we were looking at the comics. Um, I'm very excited about Galt. I'm not going to say anything more about that. Most of that is coming later in the season. But the second I saw Galt in the shifting uh, stained glass, I was very, very excited about that. Um, And I love the way that Dream connects the wandering dreams to Rose as the vortex, you know, so that it's not like some weird coincidence that everybody seems like all of these dreams that are out there in the world, you know, just randomly seem to fall in Rose's path. Rose is a vortex. She is pulling things into her path and pulling things that are significant. So I really loved that little touch in the dialogue that made it feel less coincidental and more deliberate um, in the storytelling, which I absolutely love. I I get what you're saying. I had mm-hmm. a little bit, and I, again, I, I'm not completely sure how this would have been done. I, I mm-hmm. wanted to put those puzzle pieces together a little bit more before I got that answer. I wanted mm-hmm. perhaps to see all of these disparate things happening and then have someone say, and this is what the Vortex does. I guess just perhaps a, mm-hmm. a little bit later in the game. Again, I, it's a it's a small quibble, um, but I think again the choices are really good. In the comics, we have mm-hmm. Brute and Glob, who are kind of these cartoonish characters, yes, classic big guy small guy comedy pair. Although the small, mm-hmm. you know, blob of blobbiness mm-hmm. is the the smart guy. That's sort of the yeah. shift. Uh, but <laughs> I I think I think it, it it makes sense to to not have gone that route. They Brute and Glob certainly gave mm-hmm. satisfaction to insider comics people who remembered them from, you know, which I did not at the time from from some other uh incarnation of this of the Golden Age Sandman. But um yeah, so I think that that was a good choice too. 
Yeah, I think they're really good. I love them as the like prototype of Pinky and the Brain, you know, that you've got <laughs> Brute and Glob there in the original comics. And they were a lot of fun. Um, but I do, like, I love what was done with Galt so much that I don't miss Brute and Glob for it. And I enjoyed Brute and Glob in the original thing. So, like, that's how good Galt is. Again, that's spoilery. We'll get into that later. All we're saying is that Galt is going to have a bigger role to play as we move forward in this particular part of the story. Um, but, of course, one of the things that I absolutely loved seeing again, you know, are the three, the Hecate, you know, um, the maiden mother and crone, right? Um, They're so much fun. They're so interesting. I love every time they show up. I do too. So in the comic, um, there, there is a lovely moment that we don't get because of the adaptive choices. It's one of those sacrifices that made sense. But in the comic, we've mm-hmm. got uh, Rose there with her mother, Miranda, as well as with Unity. They look in a mirror and we see Maiden Mother and Crone right before Rose goes into whatever it is, a broom closet and, and meets mm-hmm. uh, the three. And, you know, when we see them in the comic, there's also this uh, evocation of Cynthia, Mildred, and Mordred, the three witches from the Witching Hour, 70s comic, um, which I had read and loved. So I, there's mm-hmm. moments when I miss them. And Cynthia was a very mod yeah. witch. She was always saying, like, you guys are so old-fashioned. You know, here I am with my <laughs> grooviness. And um, Very 1980s Madonna sort of, you know, vibe. Oh, oh, Valley girl, maybe. <laughs> no, no. It was, well, earlier. So the, it was more, yeah. it was, so the, 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 the dudes who were writing comics in the early to mid-70s mm-hmm. were, they were kind of behind the times too. So there was this very, I don't know, mod 60s, that's what the youth mm-hmm. is talking now. Uh, oh. <laughs> so it, it sounded old-fashioned even, you know, for the time. Even then, right? <laughs> um, but yes. So uh, the other thing about this, which I, I loved is parsing Rose's questions and mm-hmm. the answers. And I, you know, it got me thinking that there is something that truly resonates for me about oracles not giving you the right. I mean, oracles are infuriating. Yeah. They're always, they're like the mm-hmm. car that flashes its headlights at you and you're thinking, slow down, speed up. Oh, it was a huge dead deer <laughs> in the middle of the road. Well, that would have been useful <laughs> if I'd stopped in time. Mm-hmm. But, um, but they're cryptic. And, mm-hmm. you know, here they, they say to, to Rose, you know, you didn't ask the right question. You know, too bad. Sucks to be you. We could have warned you, but we didn't. Mm-hmm. In in High Bender's annotated Sandman, he points out they kind of cheat because yeah. uh, I guess she asks one question too many. Uh, who are you? Mm-hmm. Protect me from what? And they say, you know, from life and from more than life and the things that, you know, yeah. get a lot of the, the, the window panes of life. But, you know, beware of dreams and houses is hardly, you know, try to avoid all the serial killers coming your way. <laughs> well, yes, that's true. But I do think that sometimes, like, if somebody gives you too much specificity in telling your fortune, that it will actually alter the way that things go. And so, like, maybe there are rules that they have mm. where they can't express. I, you know, I expect that there's some kind of universal rules and that there's certain things that they just can't say. Also, I think it's probably fun to mess with the mortals. I think that, like, it seems to me like that's a good time oh. for these three. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. 
it reminds in in the Tenth Kingdom. There's a part where there's these little fairies, and one says, "Oh, it's my turn, my turn to be naughty," and and they instead of mm-hmm. helping someone, they they screw them over. Okay, so on second watch, I also have this comment, which is really superficial, but I'm going to say it uh-huh. anyway. I thought that the three who are one showed really excellent uh, three iterations of the smoky eye on young, middle-aged, <laughs> and older women. And it reminded... Uh-huh. It, so it just reminded me. I had a friend, mm-hmm. Liz, and she said, you know, we should go to Mac's makeup counter and we'll get them to make mm-hmm. us up and then we were going to go out to do something. I thought this was a yeah. great idea, but the 20 20- something person who made me up you know did something Mm -hmm. that I guess looks fine on uh, younger women but suddenly there was a dark shadow uh, over one of my eyes and they said well I don't know why that's coming out like that and it's because you know I had a vein underneath my pale skin (laughs) and I said well well fix it and they said I I don't know how to fix it and I'm thinking come on I know how to fix it from comic books it you know if you want to (laughs) deflect you put something uh that reflects light instead of absorbs it Mm -hmm. to to get the attention off of that anyway so (laughs) I I was thinking to myself you know a smoky eye is very easy to pull off when you're maiden and, you know, maybe mm-hmm. still not so hard to pull off when your mother. But I thought, you know, that was some serious, sexy cronie. I loved it. And uh, <laughs> there should be a... They did a great job with I it. think there should be a Hecate makeup tutorial on YouTube. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yes. Message. If anybody from the Sandman yeah. production is listening, we would love to see something from your makeup artist. Oh, my God. That would be amazing. But in character. Like, I really want to see oh, that yeah. made up in character. <laughs> you want to see the three of them getting made up in character? I absolutely love it. Absolutely co-sign that request. Hopefully somebody will be listening who will think that's a good idea. <laughs> Um, all right, so you have some uh, some stuff about the pacing of the story. Well, okay, so this kind of goes back to my my quibbling about forks and chopsticks. Um, yes. So, you know, in therapy and in storytelling, there's always the challenge of how much time to give over to relating content. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to spend your whole session or episode just describing what's going on in your life because you summarize in broad strokes. And Mm -hmm. you leave out some of the little weirdnesses. And I did feel like in the interest of laying the storyline out, this is a new storyline. The challenge Mm -hmm. is we don't, you know, not only are we not starting with Sandman, we're not even starting with Endless. We, You know, we're we're just real world characters. So I, I felt that there was some way in which things were just sort of, laid out very clearly but things were explained a little bit too much and I I wanted it to unfold with a few more question marks and maybe a, a, a little, little more, more ambiguity and a little more ambiguity I, I you know annulet is mentioned and then explained right away mm-hmm. and um collectors is thrown out there and then oh serial killers oosh don't tell and I yes. thought oh mm-hmm. I I you know, it, it's hard for me to know because mm-hmm. obviously I know what collectors are. But I, mm-hmm. I, I think a little more spacing between the question and the answer, or maybe everyone's just you know, maybe as a culture we're too ADD to to put up with that anymore. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Uh, maybe. I think there's a delicate balance um, in every story. How much do you give away? Like, at what point does do the questions become so distracting that people 
leave the story. And I think that that can be really difficult. I think in comics, um, comics are so nutrient dense, like <laughs> as far as the story. They are. I mean, my God, in the in the gutter podcast that I'm doing with Joshua Unruh, where we're reading comics like deeply, um, I started to get the sense when we were going through the Sandman comics, because I never really read comics before. And now that I'm reading more and more in comics and seeing the stuff like the magic that these writers and artists are doing in a panel and nothing they have nothing they have no real estate and they're able to express so much in a panel it's magic guys start reading comic books if you don't do it it's amazing but anyway um so with all of that density of information um, that you really need to, like, when you're reading a comic, you cannot read a comic casually. You just can't. You can't, like, flip through it and be like, okay, that's done. You have to go in and sit down at the table and cut your food into tiny bites and really pay attention to everything. Television, I think, is a much, much more fast-paced kind of storytelling. So when you're going from a comic book, which has so much density, so much stuff packed in there, and trying to put that into a television show, I absolutely see what you're saying, where a little more ambiguity, a little more allowing us to kind of come to that, but also like the task at hand Mm. for the people doing this adaptation, especially when so many of the story adaptations that that I deeply appreciate, like as a story person, um, you know, like we're so, so great. Like I, I understand it. I kind of like having those answers. And maybe that's because I'm more of a story person and you're so deeply like your storytelling is so deeply in comics it's we're just coming at it from different perspectives like i like having those answers because i don't have time to waste wondering what in the hell is going on like i just want to know there's okay to have like some questions open like absolutely but little details like what is an annulet little details like all that kind of stuff like for me as a tv person i'm like yes absolutely answer that question and let me just move on about my day you know um so i think that it's really interesting because i think that we just come from different disciplines i i get it that said i mean i'm not asking for french film level of ambiguity Yes. You know, <laughs> why was the man, right. you know, mm-hmm. wearing that strange hat with a feather? Was it was he deaf? Um, but right. yeah, no, I, I, I take your point. And I think that with comics, mm-hmm. a lot of people come with this prejudice that comics are easier mm-hmm. to read because you've got pictures and oh the idea goodness. that pictures mm-hmm. you don't need you should you should get to a certain point where you don't need pictures to help you because you're mm-hmm. you're you know grown-up kid able to read lots because of words you're a real reader now but, right mm-hmm. but comic book readers and comic book writers and artists are very used to the one of the principal rules of comics is never supply the same information visually and textually. Mm-hmm. So you oh my are goodness. always, you know, putting together this sort of crossword puzzle that is composed partially of images and, and partially of, of word clues. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's part of the reason why when Joshua and I started our comic book podcast, uh, we called it In the Gutter, because the gutter is that blank space right between the panels. And that is the space where you as the reader are actively participating in the telling of this story, because you need to look at everything. You need to read everything, everything down to the font choice. Okay, I'm going to go like, I'm so sorry. I know this isn't the comic books part of our podcast right now. We're appreciating TV, which is what I'm my era. 
that's like oh I love TV I work like I've always worked with TV as far as like my my criticism and I absolutely love the the strengths that it has but what I've been able to learn about comics and how incredibly sophisticated and the efficiency like one of my big complaints is always like tell your story walking like don't waste my time you know Um, and comic books never waste my time this is a genre that is made for me there's so much there but you do have to read very carefully you do have to be so actively involved in everything that you're you're processing through these stories and you need to read them more than once if you're really going to get everything out of that comic so all I have to say to everybody out there is I cannot recommend reading comics enough it is such an amazing like reading experience um, and the respect that you have for these writers and artists is going to be through the roof the work that they do is unbelievable and Joshua is like he's like a Talmudist of comics he will he will help you see all the little yeah yeah he's very good yeah go subscribe to In the Gutter we're reading Ed Brubaker's um, Captain America um, run and then uh, Grant Morrison's JLA we just finished that season as a matter of fact I believe um, I put uh, the opening episode of that in the feed last week for you all because we had a little hiccup in our recording schedule Uh, so we needed to fill in that space Uh, definitely like listen to it read along with us it's unbelievable um the experience of reading comics is amazing and if you haven't gone back to the beginning of endless and read the sandman comics yet do that go back and listen walk we'll walk you through it elisa with her experience and her knowledge and everything it is the most amazing experience that was my first like deep comics reading experience i cannot recommend enough walking through that with elisa um having you walk through that with your experience your knowledge of everything was such an incredible thing opened my eyes to the amazing things that comics do and i'm so sorry now we can come back to the tv series okay actually actually i have something to say about romance so i was thinking how in romance there is a trope which is like i think of tropes as like the required moves in ice skating like can you do the triple (laughs) axel so i (laughs) i love the kiss you or kill you trope and i was thinking how in this the corinthian really gave me that kiss you or kill you vibe we have only seen Mm -hmm. him you know killing and munching away but here (laughs) you know he's had to hold himself back you know for Mm -hmm. for for strategic i guess it wasn't enough to give rose a a note or leave a note there she's going to make sure by by seducing her her house sitter but yes. I was just thinking how, you know, so in romance, there are so many times that people will watch TV or movies and then they'll do their little wish fulfillment. I am going mm-hmm. to anticipate right now there's going to be some Corinthian type romance because there, there's just, you know, we, we all do love the the uncertainty. Are, are you going to love me forever? Are you going to eat my eyeballs? Mm-hmm. What's it going to be? <laughs> like, what exactly is going to happen here? And you know what? I think that those kinds of fantasies are absolutely perfect. And that's kind of what romance does is allows us to sort of traipse into dangerous areas that we don't need to traipse into in real life. Um, absolutely. In real life, I think it's very important to remember that the Corinthian yes. is never going to be your boyfriend. <laughs> Never. He's going to be a bad boyfriend. Absolutely. From beginning to end. <laughs> um, all right. So like one of the things um, that I had I talked about and I mentioned previously um, in, in this podcast um, was the damseline of Rose. What happened in the um 
you know, in the original comic book series that she, you know, she was in an alley, she's being threatened, there's sexual violence being threatened, there's a sense that that's, you know, something truly, truly terrible is going to happen to her. And then, of course, Gilbert comes in, big man saves the day, right? Um, And so we set that up. And the thing that I absolutely love, um, and I know this wasn't done for me, all this was done before you and I ever started talking about Sandman in the podcast, but I love so much that I, I do feel like the Sandman TV series is specifically made to delight me that the people who are working on this have similar story, um, like, you know, sensibilities um, as I do. So they're flavoring everything like so perfectly for me. But one of the things that I absolutely love is that we open that scene the same. Like we have that scene. It's starting out. The setup is the same. There are these two guys. There's this young girl. Um, it feels very threatening. It feels like we're going to go in that exact direction. Gilbert steps in. Right. You know, and one of the first things, too, though, is that they're like they come in. It feels very threatening. They're like, hey, little girl, you know, that kind of stuff. And then they're like, no, we just really want your money. Like, we're not going to sexually assault you. We just want your money. Let's make that clear. We are going to, like, traumatize you and threaten your life, but we're not going to sexually assault you. So I appreciated that that intention was kind of removed. Gilbert steps in. He's like, I am here to save the day. And then Rose is like, yeah, hang on a second. Beats the crap out of both of them, which I absolutely love seeing happen. Um, And then turns to Gilbert. It's like, yes, may I help you? Um, And that I loved that she took care of herself. I love that she was in that damseled position and then she handled things and then she could develop the relationship with Gilbert. I mean, I love, too, that Gilbert stepped in to help. You know, like, I appreciate that he did that. Um, But the ways in which we often will reduce female characters to being rescued so that we can show how heroic our men are, um, to see that subverted in this way was so much fun for me, especially because at the beginning it was set up the exact same way. And I was sitting there like, ah, no, don't do this. And then they didn't. And I loved it. It is really fun. I I will say that I think one of the, one of the, how can I put this? In real life, if you get into a fight in an alley, you get hurt. <laughs> and it, yeah. it's probably best that this was not handled that way. But I was thinking that for, for, there was a part of me that thought for both of them, it was a slightly unrealistic, we're just going to beat the crap mm-hmm. out of you without without having any injury ourselves. I mean, I, as a kid who got into scrapes, I just do remember... <laughs> You know, just you know, you you get you get a little banged up. Well, that's one of the reasons why I say fiction isn't answerable to reality, right? Like, and neither can you defend fiction by saying that's how it really happened, nor can you really be like, well, that's not realistic. What happens is like, is it believable? Because dragons are also not realistic. Dragons are awesome, you know, but they're not realistic. So, um, so when it comes down to it, it's like, is it believable? And I think that like, yes, both Rose and Gilbert after this interaction would probably be, um, you know, a little bit traumatized, you know, freaked out. It's a, it's a trauma bond situation. Yes, I think absolutely. Like if this had actually happened, it would have ended badly. Like there would have at least been injuries. But I do like the idea that Rose, uh, you know, took some self-defense classes, clearly knows how to handle herself and doesn't need a man to save her. I, it was chef's kiss for me. Um, but that's going to be the end of this section. We're going to go into Lucian's library where we talk about themes and we talk about a little bit of behind the scenes and deeper analysis, so hang out for that. If you're enjoying Endless, a Sandman podcast, then you should know that it is only through our Patreon supporters that we are able to produce this content for you. So we'd like to take this moment to thank everyone who supports us at patreon.com slash chipperish. 
This episode of Endless was brought to you by the Chipperish patrons who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. Thank you to our power producers, Alice, Christina, Erica, Jane, Kevin, Kristen, Michael, Rose, Sarah, Shelley, Stephania, and Stephanie. All Chipperish supporters get access to the Chipperish Discord chat, where you can pop in, meet other Sandman fans, and chat with the Chipperish creators. And at $10 a month and up, you can even attend live tapings for some of our shows. Thank you to our intrepid editor, Jack Cram, whose time and skill is paid for through your support. If you'd like to support Endless and Chipperish Media, please visit patreon.com chipperish and support us today. Okay, so here we are in Lucien's library. Warning, there may be mild spoilers here. We do try not to be too spoilery, but we might have to reference things that have happened in the comics or elsewhere or whatever. Um, so let's go ahead and get talking in Lucien's library. There's nothing better to start with than Lucien herself. Lucien herself. So we are setting up more of an arc for Lucien here than Lucien uh, without the extra N and E had in the comics. I I think we can see that there's a little bit of a, a power dynamic that's that's being caught up and, and, and some echoing of the themes that we saw with Hob of Morpheus wanting to keep these really strict hierarchies, you know, in in, in place and not not allowing the people he is friends and intimates and colleagues with to to change so that that's a really nice thing and then i realized as i was looking things up that i forgot to mention that uh in the comics lore at least lucienne was previously morpheus's raven and in fact his first raven oh oh i love that relationship it's so cool. And it makes it it kind of changes how you look at Lucienne and Matthew's relationship too. Oh, it certainly does because she absolutely knows what that job entails and how it should be done. Um yeah, I really do think from now on that I'm just going to refer to Lucienne as herself. You know, um and just let her be the absolute fucking queen that she is in this show. I love her. Um, all right, so let's talk a little bit about the the dreams and the houses and all of the kind of symbolic stuff that we've got going on in this episode. So as I was taking another look at um High Bender's annotated Sandman, I saw that Neil had talked about Doll's House as being a kind of extended essay about the role of people in houses and the role in treatment of, of ignoring women and sidelining mm-hmm. them in contemporary society. And it got me thinking about how Hal is sort of trapped by his house, his inheritance. Jed is trapped yeah. in a house. We're going to see. Uh, mm-hmm. Spoiler, Lida is going to get trapped yeah. in a house. Um And it got me thinking how in times of affluence, like the 1950s and the 1980s, houses often are used to represent prisons, um, people Mm -hmm. being trapped by by the the stultifying conformity or or by having to Mm -hmm. conform to roles. And in times like we're in now, where people are less certain of their ability Mm -hmm. to afford a house now or possibly ever, houses 
fictionally more often represent security, safety, a fortress rather than a prison. Oh, my gosh. And that's so interesting how that can change based on, you know, of course, the the cultural context of the time in which a story is written, you know, which is why when you look back at stories and you're like, hey, this doesn't work so well, you know, you have to remember, A, that it was written in the context of its time um, and, and B, that, yes, we're reading it today, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't still have incredible value from the time that it was written as long as we understand and acknowledge those differences like that's what really matters you know um but the the idea that like the meaning of a house can shift so that if i'm reading today in a time where houses are more about safety and fortress a story from the 50s in which that context is completely different i'm going to completely miss that it's not going to have that extra punch you know in that moment i absolutely love that that's a really neat insight well that that's my that's my hypothesis right now Mm-hmm. I, I think I think there were a lot of ways in which the 50s and the 80s had some overlap, um, you know, and, and how I think the 80s was sort of entranced with the, well, a little bit with the 40s and also with the 50s in a way mm-hmm. that we are now, I don't know. Well, what are we entranced with right now? We seem to be entranced with the 90s, which seems so peculiar to me because in the <laughs> 90s, I thought the 90s were just a rehash of the 70s. We are. We're very we're very cyclical. We go to the same themes. And I mean, this is like the things that we do in our storytelling as well. Like there are themes, you know, from the Bible, from ancient texts, from Beowulf that are still relevant to us now because those are part of human experience. Um, although lots of things do change. Some things about what it is to be human in this world do not. And we need our stories to go back and talk about this and revisit it and tell that story over and over and over again, Um, which I think is just like, this is part of the reason why I love stories. This is the reason why I've dedicated my life to talking about them, Um, because they are so incredibly powerful. And, um, and what they can do is so incredible. They are the most versatile tool, you know, in the psychological toolbox. And I absolutely love that. Um, So you had some thoughts on the spider sisters yes or zelda and chantal pairing Mm -hmm. so my initial reaction to the spider sisters was to feel that i i I wish they were creepier they seemed sort of gamine and and charming um so i found myself looking to see what uh you know what notes from the script there were and um and so this is a little bit of neil's original script description on chantal and zelda the smaller mm-hmm. spider woman is Chantal. We can see her from about the chest up. Uh, and then he says, uh, so I'm going to go out of the physical description into, uh, I, I should mention to people that Neil in his scripts would often say things that the artist couldn't draw, but which informed the drawing. She's mm-hmm. the kind of person who asks you on first introduction whether you and she were lovers in a previous incarnation, who considers <laughs> it the height of romanticism to make love on a fresh grave, who probably has a few bone <laughs> fragments from a spot of discreet grave robbing scattered around her apartment. She's not a necrophiliac, but if they ever made it legal, she'd run a shop that catered exclusively to them. And Zelda is exactly the same, only in her late 30s, early 40s. And she never says anything, although she whispers. And he says he himself has no idea what their relationship is. Mother and daughter, lovers, sister, friends, uh, transsexual brothers. It doesn't matter, really. They're soulmates. And 
I, oh. I, I loved all that. I'm not sure all of it comes across in this incarnation, but I, I think now that we know it, perhaps it will inform my, my viewing of them even more. Yeah, we can absolutely carry that with us through uh, extra textual means. Um, but I, I love that description. And, it, you know, and in having that be part of a comic book script, again, not to bang the comic book drum again, I cannot help it. I'm so transformed by the experience of reading all of these. Um, that the the dance between the writer and the artist, the fact that all of those things, you know, that an artist can take that and and with impressions sort of, you know, get that across as much as humanly possible so that we're living kind of with the artwork in this space of, you know, almost languageless impressions, you know, and you do care. And as, as I was listening to that description, I was like, yeah, I think I did get a bunch of that from the art. I think I did get like, you don't get the specificities of like where she hides her bones, you know, (laughs) but like, but you do get a sense that that is absolutely something that you can see that character, that visual depiction. You can pick that up from that. And I absolutely love, did we sleep together in previous incarnation? That is going to be my party icebreaker from here on out. I love Um, that. I think it'll be very, very fun. So I know we were talking a little before and there was one kind of adaptation or one kind of representation that you felt was missing from this episode and possibly from this storyline. Yeah, one of the things that we don't think about, I think, as as much now, it's something that we are starting to become more aware of, but is like the representation of fat people in fiction and specifically like fat women. Um, you know, men are more often allowed to, you know, have a little more physical presence without it necessarily being a thing. We've, you know, Gilbert walking in and he is he is in a heroic position. Um, you know, he's ready to save Rose. He's he's sweet. He's avuncular. There's all these kinds of things about him that his his larger physical presence doesn't really you know uh, matter um, most of the women in uh, in Sandman so far have been uh, you know at the at the very most midsize you know which is not it is not the level of fat that that really ends up taking it on the chin in most of our media. Um, and so when I saw despair, you know, when I saw despair as this, you know, like fat, depressed, um, you know, not looking great, uh, you know, self-harm, um, that when despair is represented through feminine fatness, you know, um, At that point, it does feel like that is honestly a lot of the representation of feminine fatness. If we get fatness in in women in our media, um, it is often like inspiration porn, like watch her lose the weight and gain her value as a human, right? That that's the transformation we love to see. Um, Or we just have somebody who is, you know, in despair, who is not, you know, like having a terrible time. And uh, because, and the implication there is that because she is fat, um, that first of all, there is always the implication in fatness that it's your own damn fault and you deserve all the abuse that you get because you're choosing to be this way Um, as though anybody's body is anybody else's business which is never the case Um, so having the only fat woman on the show be despair is where I think the representation has a problem Um, again if we had beautiful sexy Lizzo type women all over this show I wouldn't have an issue with this at all 
I'd be like, we're doing fine. Because representation is about expressing everything that someone of a particular group can be, right? But what we see with fat women is mostly representations of despair until they lose the weight, at which point they are they are given their human value. Um, and because that is something that we see so often in our media, because we very rarely are seeing, um, with the exception like of, of real women in the world, like I mentioned Lizzo. Lizzo's freaking amazing, and I love her. Um, she represents beautiful, successful, confident, sexy, like, fat womanhood, you know? Um, but in the fiction where how people are represented are specifically chosen, right? All of these are specific choices that we make. We choose to um, represent our sexy, beautiful woman characters as, you know, at the very most a little curvy to extremely thin. Um, and we don't get any opposing representation for fat women. So to see despair represented in this way, to me, like it, it felt like something that I think we need to examine within our media. I I get you. And, you know, I actually my first novel was a book called Till the Fat Lady Sings. And mm -hmm. uh, the heroine is not actually fat. People even at the time said, but she's not fat. And I said that was the point. Right. The point was she was, you know, slightly perhaps heavier than than, you know, um, she she thought she should be, but it, she mm -hmm. wasn't fat. She felt fat. Society kind of made her feel fat. And I was dealing with my own issues of, of weight mm -hmm. and bulimia and whatever at the time. I love the fact that in romance, we've had this real transformative moment. And some of the diversity is weight mm -hmm. diversity. We've got writers like Charlotte Stein, who proudly and wonderfully write about plus size heroines. And that said, mm -hmm. I'm going to push back and say to you, I don't see a lot of uh, men depicted as romantic sexual objects of desire who aren't, you know, ridged, their abdomen, you know, looks as reticulated as a python. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. So, you know, mm -hmm. and it's it's an interesting Perhaps there is even a little bit of that double standard, because I think of the romances where there have been plus size heroines. I think the hero is usually depicted as, as I said, you know, having washboard abs. And I know from talking to men who have achieved washboard abs that there is a lot of abstemiousness and sit ups involved in the production of that body. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Well, that's a different discussion, though, right? Like that that doesn't have really much to do like, um, you know, the fact that people who are not fat have body issues is definitely a valuable discussion, but it's a different discussion. Um, and the fact that there are like the male representation in romance novels that men are not allowed to be fat. Let's not even begin to talk about the Thor movie where we've got him in a fat suit. Um, like that is another thing. Uh, the idea like we do this to men, too. It's just that men are more allowed to have variety in their body size and still retain their human value. Mm. With women, we find that to be an issue. So, like, definitely all the stuff you're bringing up, absolutely true. But it doesn't in any way, like, I think, change this argument about the representation of fat women in our media. Yeah. No, it's 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 mm -hmm. it's true. And uh, I I applaud you for bringing that up. 
Well, thank you. I think that it's just another thing like, you know, I'm always here to see uh, people's humanity represented um, so that when we see everyone, no matter what they may look like or what, you know, characteristics they have, that we see them as humans first. And I think that Sandman is doing a lot of really great work in this area. I'd love to see them get a sexy fat woman character on there. Okay, but human, mm-hmm. <laughs> human may really not be the right word to use here. Well, all characters, <laughs> fictional characters, even if they are endless, are coded as human for us. They are all human to us. The reality of them are always human. So I would say that, yeah, like even if it's not a human, uh, you know, fat, sexy female, uh, then uh, then we can we can put somebody in there who maybe has that representation just so that we can see that that being fat does not mean that you have to live in, you know, a dingy sweatshirt harming yourself in your basement. Like that's not you can live a wonderful, beautiful, sexy, amazing life and you have real value. And I think that we need to see that in our media. So that was like, you know, like a little quibble that I had with an episode that overall, like I really enjoyed the adaptive choices. And, you know, the fact that this is how despair is represented, again, not a problem for me if we had other representation, if we had wider representation, if we had more diversity in the way that we represent fat women, that would, you know, not be as much of a problem. But that's really the pinpoint of it for me. Um, All right. So, Elisa, here we are at my favorite part of the podcast where we talk about our favorite part of the TV show. So what is or this episode anyway? So what was your favorite part of the doll's house? The bad boyfriend. Uh, For me, Corinthian was the star of the episode. All sexy malevolence. Everything's Mm -hmm. everything's better with a side of sexy malevolence. Um, My Mm -hmm. my favorite moment was when the female serial killer says, you know, well, you don't look 130 years old. And he says, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Um, I have to say that uh, the Corinthian as as much as I am not necessarily always pulled to the bad boy trope. I mean, I definitely was with Spike and Buffy. That was an anomaly for me. Um, But yeah, the Corinthian is definitely given those vibes. And when he left, I mean, clearly he left the the house sitter alive because there was a message that needed to be conveyed. Um, But there was something like even in watching this incredibly dangerous guy, like the sex scene with the guy with the house sitter was really hot. And I was like, oh man, you know, there's some He's giving me spike vibes. He's giving me some spike vibes. And I got to say, really, I kind of dig it. Um, For me, I have to say, like, Lucien doing a census in the dreaming, that book with the handwriting and everything in it. Uh, Merv, Matthew, the, you know, stained glass windows that were flipping around and and illustrating everything. Uh, Kane and Goldie. We didn't even mention the little scene with Kane and Goldie with the little gargoyle. I, I think everything in the dreaming is basically my favorite thing in this show in this episode <laughs> i think i think you have the little raven crush on lucienne oh man yeah absolutely there's so much i can't even i can't even tell you there's so much that i love about it If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, connect with the show on Twitter. Follow at Chipperish and use the hashtag EndlessPodcast or send your comments or questions to Endless at Chipperish.com. This episode of Endless was edited by Chipperish content editor Jack Cram. Jack, I assume you're trying to get my attention. Now that you've got it, tell me why I shouldn't kill you. 
We'll be back next time with Playing House, episode number eight of Netflix's The Sandman Season One. Until then, we do not plagiarize each other's work. We have a code. <laughs>